Blood Bond by Nick Bastin. Copyright 2019, Nick Bastin. Chapter 53, Felicitations. John Lamont picked up the phone, his thin lips stretched into a broad smile. For years, he'd had to listen to that self-important prick moaning or threatening him over some perceived slight or failure. So it was a welcome change to have Andrew Balfour, the First Minister for Scotland, offering congratulations on his appointment as the Colonel of the Black Watch. Balfour had been the very model of diplomatic politesse, pouring platitudes down the phone over how he wanted to establish a closer working partnership or how gratefully was at last to have a partner in the Republic that could get things done. John Lamont was not so old or forgetful that he couldn't remember the vicious call of only a week or so earlier. But he'd already filed that memory away so it could be drawn upon at the appropriate moment. For the time being, he was gracious in his acceptance of the plaudits and promises offered by the First Minister. Having completed his metaphorical back rub, Balfour clearly felt that the moment had arrived when he could turn to more serious business and extract some action on the pressing matter of border security. I can't tell you how relieved both the Prime Minister and I are that at last there's someone in post that can show some leadership and bring about the changes that are needed in the Gallic Republic. We need to know that our neighbours respect and enforce the law. I'm interested to hear what progress has been made in both the Irish Sea incident and the hostage-taking at Dunkeld. Lamont knew that the Kingdom's Prime Minister was under pressure. The tabloid media predictably foamed at the mouth over the Irish Sea incident, and with the Dunkeld hostage-taking following so soon on its heels, the spasms of outrage had reached an incendiary level. Lamont was wise enough to know this couldn't be ignored, and he'd already helpfully constructed a narrative to pour oil on these febrile waters. It was all part of his game plan. He needed to play the First Minister like a grilse if he was to land the bigger fish of the Prime Minister. But first, he had to hook his grilse. Andrew, I want you to know that we've already taken firm steps to punish the perpetrators of both incidents. Thanks to my own investigations, I identified a renegade group from a small clan as being responsible for the Irish Sea incident. Consequently, I've seized control of their base, sequestrated their assets and burned their castle. I can also confirm that their chief was killed resisting arrest and that I have a number of suspects in custody. I've prepared some video footage that can be shared with Kingdom Media and across your social channels, which I hope will go some way to assuaging their concerns. I also hope that you'll find it shows the Prime Minister and yourself in a good light. Secondly, in respect of the Dunkeld hostage crisis, I can confirm that we now know the identity of the perpetrators, an infamous band of outlaws. Unfortunately, these individuals are very hard to control as they do not answer to any chief and live outside of our society. However, the Black Watch rapidly located and intercepted the war band, which was vigorously suppressed. I can confirm that there were 22 fatalities, 16 of which were Grigorach, and the remainder were from the Black Watch. We've also secured a few prisoners, who are apparently being questioned. Finally, we've located the stolen pharmaceuticals which we will return. Again, I've prepared some content that you might want to share across your broadcast and social channels. Goodness me, John, you have been busy. You've only been in post a few hours, and you're already achieving great results. What a relief to be able to report some progress for a change. I know that the Prime Minister will be grateful. I think it's only fair to ask if there might be anything that we can offer in return. Since you mention it, there is one thing I'd be grateful if you could look into, Lamont said, judging that this was as good a moment as any to ask. 
I was hoping that we could reach an agreement in respect of online gaming. It's a very small part of our overall economy, but it is a growth area and one which we're keen to expand. If you could see your way to lifting the prohibition you have on earnings from gaming, it would be a small but valued gesture. Although Republic companies have small operations in the kingdom, we do have substantial interests in the Far East. Balfour's silence signified to Lament that the cogs in his tiny brain were whirring, trying to work out where the catch was. Eventually the computation finished, presumably inconclusively, and Balfour replied that he would see what he could do, and then he rang off. The idea that he might be able to onshore the money that was pouring in from the McNuchton's gaming operation was almost erotic. As with politics everywhere, follow the money. Money attracts power, power attracts money. A virtuous and vicious cycle. Even in the Gallic Republic, the one with the most cash was almost certainly going to win, and the lamentation wanted to make sure that that was going to be him. Chapter 54. The Burning Ember. Kirsty paced her cell, working her leg muscles and counting the number of lengths. She was up to 1,657, which she then tried to convert into miles as she walked. She'd always been quite good at maths, and she quickly worked it out that at roughly three paces to each length and two and a half feet per pace, she had done 12,427 feet. That was roughly two miles she'd paced that morning. Satisfied, she paused to do a few squats, sinking low on her haunches to stretch her muscles. Her hands were still too sore to put any weight on them, so press-ups were out of the question. She looked at the baby fingers on both her hands and winced their mangled state. They were black and swollen, more like morcilla sausages. She still couldn't bend them, even the slightest amount, without intense pain, and she doubted that they would ever heal fully. Using her teeth, she had torn off some strips of her shirt, which she had used to bind each to its neighbour to try and keep them supported and straight. She thought back to the hours in that chair, how she'd wanted to gouge and claw at Alan Stewart, to feel his flesh tear beneath her nails and teeth, not just to make him stop, but to exact her revenge, her toll for the pain and misery he'd visited on her. She'd briefly felt ashamed of how quickly she'd given up her secrets, but she knew that she had little option, Pride and Clayu dictated that she should have held out and allowed them to crush and mangle each joint and bone in her body before revealing such secrets. But she knew, as did anyone else who'd actually been faced with the choice, that few of any can take that route, and she was not one of them. In any case, she'd made a contingency, and it was important for her to live long enough to be able to put it into action. She did not know how long she had left, Anything that postponed the inevitable moment was to be grasped. The cell was rough-cut stone and largely featureless. She didn't care. It was a huge improvement from the nightmare of the oubliette. That had been true terror. It had not been a hole in the ground, more of a slot. One that was so narrow that she could not turn around, or lie down, or raise her arms, or barely move. It had been pitch black, cold, and she could feel the gnawing bite of the damp needling its way into her bones. She had felt like she was suffocating, the blackness pouring into her lungs and smothering her. The tears running down her face had left an icy trail down her skin. She wanted to rub them away, but she could not lift her arms to reach them. Piss and shit had flowed and fallen where gravity took them, but at least these had diminished over her time as her body emptied itself. The shame, like the hunger, lit a fire deep in her soul, 
an ember of pure, red-hot hate. She blew on that ember in the darkness, nurturing its glow, stoking its first lick of flame into a blue burning coal of white-hot power that melted and consumed her from within, expunging all other thought. She still carried it with her like an isotope in her heart, its heat and mass and ever-present weight. She prayed that she would have the chance to unburden herself, to free herself from its negative charge, and to be ready for that moment, she paced. Chapter 55, The Sign of the Two Stags It was getting dark when Breach left her house at number six Stronshera and walked along the loch. It was damp, that in-between highland weather that is so prevalent in Argyll, where it's not exactly raining, but not exactly not raining either. Mist was draped thickly over the trees and spilled wetly down the sides of Benbuya, pooling on the loch edge. Across the loch at Arkingless, she could see curtains of rain being blown across the shore. Fortunately for her, the prevailing wind was keeping it away from the path that she had to tread. As she walked under the trees, she breathed in the green scent of the wet pines, the evocative smell of her childhood, the sharp tang of the fresh needles from the low-hanging branches overlying the warm, musty brown of the old ones that had fallen on the path, their deadening carpet yielding softly to each footstep. As she walked past the castle, the trees parted, and the comforting aroma of times past was subsumed into a more complex blend of dank stone and burnt wood. The blackened rib cage of the charred roof timbers were silhouetted, eviscerated against the grey sky. She had not been down on the shore since the Lamentations men had arrived to take control. It had been bad enough having the Campbells standing sentry and acting like they owned the place. But at least they were all lads that she had been to school with. Boys she had played shinty against or kissed at a Cayley and fooled around with on the hill away from prying eyes. The Lamentations men were different. As with any organisation, if you want to understand its culture, look no further than its leader. The tone they set and their demeanour seeps and permeates through the rest of the body. Now that she knew McCallan more better, she could see that the officious and arrogant aspects of his character could be found easily across the clan, but also the more tender and open-natured elements too. The Lamentations men, on the other hand, were overbearing, brusque and harsh, with no obvious redeeming features. The black beetle-eyed Alan Stewart had been given Dunderard by Lament and spared no time in asserting his authority, facing down the few camels that had tried to hold on to what they'd taken. With McCallan Moore having vanished, the camels were like decapitated chickens. The legs and wind were flapping, but there was no purpose or direction to their movements. They were swiftly outnumbered and retired to Inverary to lick their wounds. Bereege didn't spend any time looking down at the castle. A quick glance showed her that the flag of the Black Tower that had always flown from its flagpole had gone. It had been replaced by the Lamentation's hand, turned palm outward. Many of the clan crests were apposite to their nature, and none more so than Lament's, a palm raised in warning, a warning to stop and go no further, aggressive and dismissive. She was soon threading her way through the houses at the edge of Clacken. She passed out of Ian the Rat and Fiona, the grass in their garden still winter-brown, looking as tired and worn as she felt. Nothing a little sunlight wouldn't cheer. This winter had lasted forever. Raising her eyes to the snow that still lay on Benbuya, she cursed as ever present reminder that spring had yet to come. The path now opened out into a wide grass space tucked under the hill and fronting onto the rocky shore. Standing four square in the centre was the two stags inn, her destination. 
Two Stags was the favoured drinking hole of the clan. It was where you knew you would always find a friendly face, cheerful chatter and a roaring fire. Its long, low frontage hunkered down under the lowering mass of Benbuya behind. It was a single story of white-hulled blocks with a steep-pitched slate roof above. It seemed to seamlessly blend into the rocky massive behind. Two gabled ends sandwiched the main body of the inn, and in the pitch under the roof of each side was painted a red deer stag, festooned with antlers, bellowing a challenge at its painted rival in the other gable. Underneath these, in now traditional Highland fashion, were two large picture windows, which gazed blankly out over the loch towards our kingless on the other shore. Breach was grateful to step over the threshold, out of the penetrating damp and into the warm and cheering atmosphere of the bar. Shedding her coat and hat, she shook out her long blonde hair. She paused by the fire, holding her hands out to warm them against the smouldering peat, and when she felt life returning to the tips, turned and approached the bar. As usual, there were two of the clan's soaks propped up by the counter, Tam and Davy. A comical pairing, they were always found sat together on the high stools at the bar, and were an excellent source of information on the, on the ebb and flow of visitors. They drank slowly and steadily from the opening hour to the closing bell, never havering, but steadily racking up the pints and gills. Davy was as thin as a rake, was always smartly dressed in a crusty old tweed jacket over a rather mothy kilt, always the same kilt. His face was lined from years working for the clan company in far-flung tropical climes, and it was as if his skin had absorbed so much sunshine that it could never completely relinquish its tan, despite the mounting number of indoor hours. Tam, on the other hand, was always a little dishevelled, his straggly hair pulled into ever more wild peaks and promontories as the day wore on. His mind and chat were rapier-sharp, though, and despite the years of booze, Bridge always loved to spend time discussing the rights and wrongs of the world with him. Having embraced each of them in turn, she turned to Delina, the two stags' barkeep and owner, and ordered a glass of claret. Not wanting to be waylaid by Tam and Davy, she took her glass and went to the far gable end of the bar. There, gathered round a table, were Ian the Rat, Jamie and Archie Beaton. Having kissed them each hello, she took her place at the table. After several minutes of gloomy reflection on the Lamentations' outrageous move, and how Alan Stewart was no neighbour for those who wanted a long and peaceful life, conversation turned to what they could or should do to alleviate their situation. Jamie, who was still wincing occasionally due to his wound, spoke for all. I just can't believe that it's all fallen apart so quickly. Only a few weeks ago, Duncan was still alive and the money was rolling in. Now what are we left with? Nothing. A smoking ruin, two dead chiefs, our land and livelihood sequestrated by that unscrupulous bastard. Everything that has held us together for nearly a millennium is under threat or destroyed. If we don't do something soon, the clan is just going to fall apart. For once, Ian the Rat was in agreement. Aye, and we need to be quick about it. The sharks can smell blood right enough, and are starting to rip chunks out of us. I heard that Donald Hendry over by Invercorican had a bunch of MacArthur sniffing round his farm. He saw them off, they have their eye on him, no question. I'm sure that that is being repeated all across our land. Has anyone heard from the company? Bridge asked. I think that before he was killed, Alexander said they were still in Jamaica on leave. Do you know if they've even heard about what has happened? The gathered heads all shook in unison. Well, it seems to me that we need to get a message to them. They'll be furious when they hear about what's happened to Alexander and will surely want to avenge him. We need their muscle if we're to have a hope in taking and holding the castle. The problem is that our network has been down ever since the Campbells took the castle. Without it, we can't communicate with anyone. It's like we've been gagged. Do any of you know how we can turn it back on? They all shook their heads and stood there gloomily, silently contemplating their glasses. 
Eventually it was Jamie who spoke. Didn't uh, Fiona, Malcolm's widow, work with Kirsty? Maybe she'll have some idea of how to do it. Looking at the knitted brows of her companions, Breach decided that this was the best idea they could hope for. Taking a large slug of claret from her glass, she stood up. Okay, I'm going to go round to her house to see if I can get her to come and join us. We'll find out soon enough if she can help. Twenty minutes later, she was back with Fiona at her side. Fiona's haggard face was not improved by the streaky mascara trails left by the rain that was now lashing down outside. But there was a steeliness to her that Breach thought was much needed. After greetings had been exchanged and a glass of claret poured, all eyes turned to Fiona, more in hope than expectation. Fiona pulled out her vape out of her pocket, and taking in a deep lungful, slowly breathed out a cherry-flavoured cloud while she contemplated the faces round the table. Having mastered her thoughts, she said, I, I work for Kirsty on the network systems. I won't say that I'm exactly up to her standard, but I know my way around. But to be honest, I'm not sure that's much use. There are some other big issues that we need to address first. You're all familiar with the fact they burned down our server room, right? And along with it, our access to the internet through our satellite uplink. We do have a backup of our data stored across a variety of mirror sites around the world. And if I can access that, I can get the network back online. But we need to have an internet connection and a mobile data signal. Currently, they've shut down our mobile transmission towers and destroyed the satellite dish. So not only does the clan not have a signal, but even if we did, there is no entry point for it onto the net. We need to find a way to turn the towers back on and somehow to connect them to an internet gateway. If we can do that, then I can activate the remote backup and get the clan systems back online, no problem. They all sat there despondently, nursing their glasses. Breach was beginning to think that it looked hopeless. She'd never thought that access to communications was so important. In the old days, the clan would just send out the fiery cross to raise the men, but in the 21st century, there wasn't the time for such old-fashioned methods. Ian now spoke up, rubbing his scraggy stubble as he did so. The switch for the mobile tower's power supply is in the castle's main substation. That's under the courtyard of the fountain. It'll be tricky to get to it without being spotted, and even if we do switch them on, what's to stop them just switching them off again? Also, that still doesn't solve the problem of the gateway. Archie Beaton hadn't said anything yet and he rubbed his fingers through the white woolly ring of hair that sat down on his ears, his bald pate shining under the lights. OK, so let's talk this through logically. We need to turn on the mobile network, and to do that we need to gain access to the courtyard of the fountain and flick the right switch. Then we need to connect to an internet gateway, but our own is destroyed. The question is, who else has one that we could connect to? Presumably the Campbells have one in Inverary. Don't be absurd, interjected Jamie. There's no way the Campbells would allow us to piggyback through their gateway. Slow down. No need to get so feisty, Archie said calmly. And turning to look at Breach, he said, I believe that some of us have rather better relationships with the Campbells than others at the moment. Breach flushed fiercely, hoping that nobody would see in the rather dim light of the bar. Archie continued, Breach here performed a valuable service to the Campbells, saving the life of one of their top junior wassail in the Inverary Infirmary the other day. I believe she has established a rapport with McCallan Moore. If you ask for support, will he help us? I, I could ask, Breach replied. McCallan Moore has disappeared and no one knows where he is. The lamentation has probably had him killed or kidnapped as part of his grand plan. Even more reason for them to help, said Archie. They want to get their chief back and we want to get our castle back. The lamentation seems to be the key to both. It must be better that we join forces. 
Surely you can go and speak to his steward and see what they could do. If you do that, then we can think about how to turn on the mobile towers, and I have an idea of how we might do it. The group all leant in and listened to what the beaten had to say, until even Jamie was nodding his agreement to the plan. It was a bold plan, maybe too bold, but no one had a better one. Chapter 56. Partners. The first part of the plan was relatively easy. Bridge rose early and waited for Fiona to join her at the Stronshira, before heading into Inverary. Fiona had turned up on a single-cylinder trail bike, the engine thumping a deep staccato rhythm while she waited for Bridge to climb on the back. Perching on the tiny seat, Bridge had to grab on tight to Fiona as she twisted the throttle, propelling the bike over the bridge and down the few short miles to Inverary. As they pulled into the gravel sweep in front of the castle, Fiona pulled a neat slide, scattering chips far and wide. Both of them were grinning as Fiona popped the bike on its side stand. Ugh, I haven't done that in ages. Feels so good to be out and about in the open air. Her face was alive and positively glowing with energy after the short and frankly rather hair-raising ride. Bridge slid off the back and walked round towards the Port Cochere, where the two Campbell clownsmen on duty eyed them suspiciously. Bridge was a relatively familiar face, given her recent stay at the castle, and they were certainly less assertive than they would normally have been had two McNachtons arrived in a cloud of dust and gravel. One kept them at the door while the other went inside to find Duncan Campbell, the steward, who was responsible for the castle and clan in McCallum Moore's absence. When Duncan arrived five minutes later, he was effusive in his welcome for Bridge, ushering the pair of them through the door and into the splendour of the atrium. There was a modest fire burning in the grate, and he invited them to warm themselves on the fender while he pulled up a chair. After the welcome and introductions were out of the way, Bridge asked after McAllen Moore. Duncan looked crestfallen as he admitted, no one has seen him since he went to Oban for the Corleone meeting. He was supposed to be having dinner the previous night with Lament at the South's Herring but after that he just disappeared. We've been making inquiries in Oban, but no one saw him leave. We can only imagine that he's in the hands of Lament. We pray that he's not been murdered already. I would like to think that he's worth more alive than dead, but with Lament you never know. The burly clownsman looked like he was about to burst into tears, his eyes reddening. Pausing to allow him to regain his composure, Bridge put her hand out and squeezed his shoulder. Don't you fret, Duncan. We'll find him and bring him back. I don't know how, but if we can work together, then I'm sure we can do it. And that is why we're here, said Fiona. We need your help too. They've disabled our mobile network and our satellite uplink. We need to route our signal through your connection so that we can start organising the clan. Without communications, we are helpless. Duncan looked from Fiona to Bridge. I'm not sure what to say. Obviously, we've never countenanced such an action before giving another clan access through our network. It's unprecedented. But then, these are not normal times. He stood up and gestured for them to follow. He led them outside and around the castle to a range of buildings built out of the same dark grey black stone. It must have been the old stable yard. He punched an entry code on the door and ushered them into a gleaming white space with row upon row of desks and computers. The banks of programmers briefly raised their eyes to see who had entered before returning their gaze to their screens. This is where we coordinate our clan companies around the world, as well as manage our various other business interests. We have a pretty big backbone network that's plugged straight into the VAC-90 transatlantic cable, so we have plenty of bandwidth. 
Here, let me introduce you to Fergus MacIver, who runs the operation, and see what he can do to help. Fergus was a small and neat man with a fastidious manner, clean-shaven and with carefully parted hair. He wore thick, horn-rimmed spectacles that gave him an owlish countenance. He started engaging Fiona in an impenetrable patois of contention ratios and terabytes that made Bridget's head spin. Fiona, on the other hand, seemed to positively bloom, throwing her shoulders back, pointing and asking questions. Soon she was laughing and spraffing with the otherwise dry-looking Fergus. Bridget was grateful to be able to leave them to it, and she and Duncan returned to the castle. Bridget now had the opportunity to tell Duncan the rest of the plan, and after 20 minutes discussing various details and variants, she left him and wandered back along the loch shore towards Stronshira. Chapter 57. Until the Blood Flows Alan Stewart was enjoying being laird for once, and not the servant. Although Dundarav was no castle Ascog, not least because it had the sky pouring through one half where the roof had been burned away, it still gave him a thrill to walk its empty halls and rooms. He had ensconced himself in what had been Duncan McNachton's bedroom and the unburned half of the building. He'd had no time to clear out the clothes or get rid of all the possessions that littered every surface, but he did get a vicarious thrill from lying in that bed, that bed where Duncan had famously bedded stars of the stage and screen and a few politicians to boot. It was starting to get dark when he heard the first shouts. He was unable to see anything from the window, so he went down the stairs and out through the courtyard of the fountain into the outer ward. From there he could see that a crowd of laments had gathered around two figures who were shouting at each other, fingers jabbing, swearing and making threats. From the look of their tartan, one was a Campbell and the other was a McNachton. Both were red-faced and furious. As he approached, one of his junior officers, Ned Burden, started briefing him on the situation. Sir, these two just appeared, and it wasn't long before an argument started. This one, he gestured at Ian the Rat, accused him, at which he gestured at Duncan Campbell, of being a motherfucking Campbell cunt bastard, while this one, he pointed at Duncan, threatened to cut off his pointy yellow nose and feed it to his dog. Alan immediately saw the potential for a bit of entertaining mischief, one where someone else's blood was at risk. Entering the ring of laments that it encircled the pair, he said, Well, well, what do we have here? Seems like there's little bad blood between the pair of you. Having heard some of the terrible language you've been using, I can't imagine that anything will assuage it but blood and steel. Both Ian the Rat and Duncan nodded, their eyes locked, their posture menacing. Okay, I hereby declare cannon has been invoked. You must fight until the blood flows. May the first blood not be your last. May the first blood not be your last, echoed the surrounding laments, stepping back to create a wider arena for Ian the Rat and Duncan to fight. Swearing, they both drew their blades and circled each other, Duncan adopting the unusual inside half-hanging guard with the sword point down the basket at shoulder height, thereby protecting his lower body. Ian had adopted the more assertive St George's guard with the sword arm raised up at head height and with the blade held horizontal. His leg was in shift so that Duncan would have to lunge at full stretch to make contact. They circled each other warily lobbing occasional insults as each in turn laid a desultory cut or feint at the other. Alan laughed to himself. These clownsmen were so puffed up on pride they would fight at the drop of a hat, the fools. Anyway, it provided good entertainment for others, especially his men, who had gathered around to watch and who had had a busy few days. 
If there was a better way to pass the time than see two men fight and spill their blood, Alan Stewart didn't know it, and he happily settled back to enjoy the contest. Blood Bond was written and recorded by Nick Bastin. The Reel of the Red Banner was written and performed by Ewan Henderson. This has been a Book of the Black Tower production. <laughs>